Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're speaking with Carrie Gillum. She is a veteran investigative journalist, researcher, and writer with more than 25 years of experience covering corporate news. We're discussing her new book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science, which um, is officially being released on October 10th. So, Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, what got you interested in writing about this topic? Well, <laughs> I've, I've been writing about uh, this really for almost 20 years now. Um, I, I started covering Monsanto uh, for Reuters. You know, I spent most of my career with the international news agency Reuters, and, and um, part of my job there was to learn about Monsanto and all of its business strategies and products and, uh, and the other companies that it was competing with, and, of course, Roundup, you know, or, or glyphosate, which is the main ingredient uh, was Monsanto's big agrochemical, um, and it's actually the biggest in the world, the most widely used chemical pesticide um, used in agriculture around the world. So um, it's become a very kind of important topic in food production and uh, related to environmental health and human health. Um, so I just, I really got sucked in, you know, and, and that's the book. The book kind of lays out all of the research that has come about over the last 20 years. Well, can you just start us with the basics, a little bit about Monsanto? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I'm guessing there are a few people who haven't heard of Monsanto, right? Um, uh, Monsanto's been around, you know, for 100 years, more than 100 years. Uh, it's um, a big industrial chemical company um, and food, uh, food additive. Um, one of their first products was saccharin um, early on. Uh, they are now are most probably best known because of the genetically engineered seeds that they um, introduced in the mid 1990s, um, and they, you know, designed these seeds mostly uh, to accelerate and increase the use of glyphosate, um, which is, you know, as I said, the key ingredient in Roundup branded uh, weed killer. You know, and most people um, are pretty familiar with Roundup. They might use it on their lawn or garden, um, you know, to kill weeds. Or, you know, and as I said, farmers use it, golf course uh, operators use it, our cities and towns use it to spray on parks and, you know, children's playgrounds. And um, it's used in forests um, where they harvest timber. Um, it's, it's really pervasive in our environment today. So um, can you tell us, I mean, you just did explain what, what Roundup is, but, um, you know, most people are aware of it as a herbicide, and I know we're going to talk about it being much more. Um, how long has it been around and kind of how did it get started? Yeah, so Monsanto um, introduced glyphosate um, branded products, Roundup, in 1974. Uh, they brought glyphosate to the market. It, at the time, you know, was considered like a really... Um, changing, you know, dramatically uh, changing weed killer because it was so effective and so efficient um, and it really was uh, seen as helping farmers, you know, be more efficient, produce food um, better. They wouldn't have to till up the ground to fight weeds. It was really seen as quite a remarkable um, new product. 
in the 70s and 80s, um, farmers around the world really kind of embraced it, and it was seen as much safer um, than other weed killers, other herbicides that were on the market. Um, some, you know, marketing has touted it as safe as table salt. You know, some people have gone so far as to say it's safe enough to drink, uh, which really isn't <laughs> true. Nobody should try to drink that. Monsanto doesn't even really say that now. Um, but, you know, it, it became an incredibly popular product, much more so when Monsanto introduced all of these crops that were genetically engineered so that they could be sprayed directly with this weed killer um, and not die. You know, they're called glyphosate-tolerant crops or herbicide-tolerant crops. So, um, you know, but it's, it's highly controversial because over the years, a lot of research has developed to show that it can cause cancer um, or kidney problems or an array of other health problems when people are exposed to it, you know, either through the food that they're eating because of the residues that are left on that food um, or through environmental exposure, you know, farm workers or other people who are spraying it, you know, and, and uh, absorbing it through their skin or, or inhaling it, that sort of thing. So. It's, it's very controversial now, the safety or lack of safety of this product is a very big debate around the world. Well, it, it seems strange to me that, um, you know, if it, if it was safe, we wouldn't need to make crops that were resistant to it. You know, it wouldn't actually, because in reading your book, you know, if they sprayed Roundup or the glyphosate on regular crops, they would die as well. So that right. seems counterproductive to me for a weed killer. <laughs> well, right. I mean, they, the idea is that you kill the weeds and not the crops, right? And so when they introduced these uh, glyphosate-tolerant crops, it was the greatest thing for farmers. You know, they loved it because now they could go out and they could just spray their fields. They didn't have to worry about the weed killer getting on their soybeans or corn or canola or sugar beets or anything like that. They could just spray the field directly um, and the crops would not die, but the weeds would. So. Farmers really, 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 um, you know, liked this product uh, for a very long time. Now, as I said, it's not, you know, there have been a number of problems that have come up over the years. And number one, for farmers, it's not really killing weeds like it used to. The weeds have become resistant to it. Um, so it's not, it's not doing the work that it, uh, you know, used to do. But it is um, leaving residues on the food that we eat. Um, and it is changing the health of the soil. I mean, there are a lot of environmental implications. And then, of course, there are the cancer concerns for the people who are exposed to it. Well, and we're, we're going to talk about that. I wanted to talk more about these um, seeds because I know they're patented. So what does that mean for the farmers? Um, you know, although it seems like it's easier and people were liking what was happening, patented seeds are a whole different thing than what they used to be using. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, that was one of the big, you know, big aspects of the controversy over genetically engineered crops when Monsanto first introduced them um, in the mid-1990s. You know, throughout all of time, really, you know, farmers can save their seed. They grow a crop and then they can save, you know, some of that back and save seed and replant um, the next year or the next year. Um, no one really ever owned sort of the life form, the plant form like that before. Um, but Monsanto did when it introduced these, these seeds that have had their genes altered, um, Monsanto patented them. And so the, you know, the law requires farmers then not to save their crops back, not to save their seeds, but to um, 
you know, actually, if they want this trait, they need to buy new seeds every year. Um, and that, you know, that was something that people really pushed back on um, because, you know, it's higher prices for farmers then. It, it costs them more. Um, it changes sort of the dynamic of the way that farming has traditionally been done. Um, but, you know, most of them, the people who adopted it, obviously decided it was worth the trade-off um, because of the easier uh, field management, the easier weed control. So before we had Roundup, what did people use for weed control? Oh, there have been a number of herbicides um, over the years um, that have been used. And, and it is true, you know, that many of them are much more acutely toxic than glyphosate. There's a weed killer card called uh, Paraquat, for instance, that farmers would use and still use sometimes, but to burn down fields or to kill out the weeds. And Paraquat is, is known to be boy, you don't want to get a drop on your tongue because it's if you do ingest um, some a little tiny amounts of paraquat, uh, you're probably going to die in a very short amount of time, you know, <laughs> two to three weeks. I mean, um, people are very careful when they handle that weed killer. Um, and glyphosate was different. So, again, farmers, you know, embraced it and thought they had something uh, much safer um, on their hands. But... You know, we're, we're finding out through the research that that may not necessarily be true, um, that, that you might still be paying a price, but maybe it's over the longer term. Um, so there are a lot of questions, you know, that are coming up about uh, glyphosate and Roundup safety. So um, what, what does the science tell us about the safety of Roundup? Well, you know, as I said, there have been just, you know, many, many research studies over the years and different ones have found different, you know, reasons for concern. In um, 2015, in March of 2015, this, um, this body called the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, took a look at a lot, a lot of this scientific evidence, this research, and they looked at um, human health uh, studies, epidemiology studies. They looked at uh, laboratory animal studies, which are the toxicology work. Um, they looked at a, a whole range of studies from different countries. And what they determined was that, that glyphosate probably is a human carcinogen. Um, they didn't say it definitely was, uh, but they said it probably was. It looked like it probably could cause cancer. And they said the most um, strongest link was to the type of cancer called non-Hodgkin lymphoma, a uh, blood cancer that has really been on the rise um, around the world, particularly in North America. Um, and, you know, it's was, it was a particularly deadly and, and horrible, you know, form of cancer. So uh, that's really what has sparked so much debate over around the world over the last two years is this finding um, by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, because these folks that sit on this this team um, who evaluated are like the top scientists around the world, um, and they're and they're people who are independent. They're people who don't have financial ties, you know, to the chemical industry or agriculture. They're they're seen as independent experts. So, um, you know, but there, as I said, there are many different studies. Um, some of Monsanto's own studies that they paid for and had done, you know, have shown um, tumors in animals that are exposed to glyphosate and things like that. So, you know, and there's some kidney disease um, evidence that has shown up and some birth defect evidence, um, you know, that this, this could cause birth defects. Um, 
in children born to you know women exposed to it. Uh, it's just you know there are a lot of horrible things um, that when you start digging into the research and the science that you know are really alarming. Um, well, you know, it is alarming because it, it's our food, and um, yeah. you know, we ge- we generally feel like um, we're being protected by you know organizations that are watching over us, and that what we're doing is safe for us. And um, if if you know, glyphosate and Roundup are being are the most widely used herbicides, that means they're they're everywhere. And the the implications of that when it when you're saying it, it's most likely to cause cancer and birth defects. Um, that's pretty scary to me. Yeah, it is. And what I was trying to in in my book in Whitewash, um, I talk about it. And glyphosate is sort of the main is is indeed obviously Montana the main thread um, through the book, but. It really, you know, is only one, right, of many pesticides, and it's the most widely used herbicide right now, um, but one of many pesticides that we're consuming every day when we, you know, eat our breakfast and our lunch and that we're feeding our children. And we don't realize, I don't think most of us, that um, that we've gotten to this level um, in in Canada and in, you know, the United States and in some parts of Europe and, and around the world and definitely in South America. But we're just pouring, you know, insecticides and herbicides and fungicides and onto our food crops, um, onto the fields where we're planting these, these and harvesting these plants that are being used for food. And all the, go- you know, governments in Europe and, and Canada and North America routinely test foods for residues of these different kinds of pesticides and routinely find them, you know, levels of them, some of them that are considered so high that they're illegal um, and others that the government says, ah, don't worry about that. Um, now, even even at lower levels, there are many scientists that say, you know, consuming this accumulation of pesticides over and over and over and over again is, is really harmful um, to our health. Um, but that body of research and information is still developing. But it just, you know, strikes many people, including myself, it's not a good thing, right, to be taking uh, all of these pesticides in with our food every day. Um, it worries me as a mother. Um, and, and glyphosate, as I said, glyphosate is the most widely used and, and has shown up um, in a number of tests in cereals and, you know, breads and, um, you know, crackers and snacks that you would feed to your kids and... Um, it's really pervasive and it's showing up in our bodies you know in, in if you have your urine tested you if, if you have your urine tested to see if you have glyphosate you probably do so you probably will will have this weed killer um, show up in your body so um, well, it, well, that's pretty scary because if they're spraying it in the air even if you're trying to avoid it um, they're you know, in your book, you talk about it's in our water and, you know, it's being sprayed in the air. So it doesn't, it sounds like we can't avoid it at all, no matter how, what we're doing and how careful and cautious we are. And that, you know, maybe if you're living somewhere off by yourself in the middle of nowhere and you grow your own food and, you know, maybe that's the way to do it. But um, I think for most of us, yeah, I mean, you can, you can choose organic foods, you can choose foods that um, are grown by a farmer you know who perhaps, you know, you know they don't use these pesticides. Organic, of course, is, you're not supposed to um, use synthetic pesticides. So that's one way to try to lower your pesticide exposure through food. Um, but, 
it's it's not a perfect system. And um, we've created this world where these corporate pesticide companies, these corporate chemical companies who are making billions of dollars off of these products have somehow convinced our farmers and our policymakers, our lawmakers, you know, and even members of the public, I guess, that it's not a big deal, that, you know, it's fine. We can have giant, you know, pesticide loads in our food system and, and be fine with it and, you know, have it be in our water and um, our air and be fine with it. Um, but there are a number of people pushing back who say no, who say we, you know, this is what Rachel Carson warned us about, right, 55 years ago. And we paid attention for a little bit, and now we completely seem to have forgotten those lessons. And uh, I just, it feels like in the point of the book, Whitewashes, we're, we're on a pesticide treadmill. And if we don't realize that and, and identify that and, and start doing something about that, you know, we're, we're setting ourselves and our children up for a really unhealthy future with rising rates of cancer and disease and other ailments, which of course you're already seeing. I'm sure many of your listeners know more than one person who has cancer or has had cancer. I know I certainly do. Um, far too many, um, actually. So, you know, it's um, something I'm hoping people will pay attention to. Pesticides aren't, it's not a sexy topic, right? It's not something that, <laughs> no. right, at cocktail parties people are like, oh, let's talk about pesticides. But um, it certainly affects all of us who eat, you know? <laughs> well, I definitely agree with you. We're going to talk about this more after the break. Today we're talking with Carrie Gillum. She is the author of Whitewash, the story of a weed killer cancer and the corruption of science. We'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You 
are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Um, today we're speaking with Carrie Gillum, and we're discussing her book, Whitewash. So, Carrie, um, one thing with with the pesticides, well, Monsanto products, and I think this has a lot to do with the crops as well, um, but there, there's an argument that this is going to end hunger in Africa. Is that something that we're seeing happen? The end of hunger in Africa? <laughs> yeah. No. no, I mean, this has been sort of the propaganda, you know, or the talking points from um, the genetically altered seed proponents uh, like Monsanto and, and others uh, for many, many years. You know, they're saying, well, if you buy these special seeds, then we can have, you know, increased production and all of these starving places in Africa and other places, you know, will starvation will be wiped out. And if you oppose GMO seeds, you, you know, you don't care about poor starving people. And I mean, it's propaganda. It's, uh, there, there is no yield gain um, that has been shown or demonstrated that's inherent in these genetically engineered crops. They're not engineered for yield. They're engineered for things like insect resistance, weed tolerance, um, disease resistance. Now, of course, those things, if you do, if you are able to reduce insect pressure and weed pressure and disease, then you're going to have hopefully a better crop if mother nature cooperates and, you know, your soil is healthy and, you know, you get the right amount of water and sun, you know, those sorts of things. So there are a whole lot of factors obviously that that go into growing, um, you know, good, healthy crops. Um, So, but in in Africa and a lot of the less developed nations, it's, pretty well known among people who study the issues that it, it's not that they have bad seeds. I mean, it, the, the reasons that these people are don't have adequate food relates to, you know, politics a lot, um, entrenched poverty, uh, lack of infrastructure to distribute food properly, you know, roads and bridges and refrigeration. And, you know, so there are a lot of different issues um, in underdeveloped nations that have that play into the lack of food. Genetically engineered crops really isn't one of them. It's a good talking point. It's a good propaganda point, um, but it's not something that is the answer to feeding the world. Uh, even though the chemical industry and the seed industry, which are one and the same, you know, they're a handful of giant companies: BASF, Syngenta, Dow, Dupont, Monsanto. You know, these people control the seed market and the chemical market around the world, and they use them together. Um, and whenever anybody pushes back, this is one of their favorite arguments. Oh, but you need us to feed the world. So, um, other than propaganda, it's hard to find any solid evidence that, you know, has any real merit. Um, yeah, it seems like it, it's, the, it is their, their big argument, but, um, as far as I know, people are still starving in Africa and it's probably all those other reasons that, that you mentioned and not the lack of food. Cause from what I understand, there isn't a lack of food. It's that it's just not in the right places. Well, and right. One of our biggest genetically engineered crops is corn, uh, right? We, and we grow so much corn here in the United States that we have more than we 
can use. And we have more corn than other people want to buy from us. We have usually about a billion bushels of corn in storage in the United States because it's not used up during the year um, before the next harvest comes around. You know, we're not shipping that off to starving people in Africa. Um, it, it's, it's not a question of, of uh, you know, you need these seeds to produce more food. It's, as I said earlier, it's a lot. It's infrastructure. It's politics. It's um, no means to distribute the food, to store the food, you know, that sort of thing. So one of the, the issues that we're having with the Roundup as well, um, and, it, you know, I love this, this story in your book about this, is the super weeds and, and what is actually happening with those. So can you just explain what super weeds are and, and what's happening with them? Sure, yeah, I can. Um, super weeds are uh, res- weeds that have become resistant to the weed killer, that have become resistant to glyphosate or, as you know, Roundup. Glyphosate, again, being the active ingredient in Roundup. And, you know, farmers, when, when they first started using it, of course, as I said, it worked great. Um, but like anything, you know, like antibiotic resistance and others, um, resistances developed in the weed community, the weed population. Uh, so now when farmers go out to spray, the weeds are like, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm not going to die. And um, it's become a real problem because these weeds, some of them, and I, you know, didn't know, really believe it till I saw it. But, I mean, they can grow taller than, like, a man, you know, six feet tall, eight feet tall, and with giant stalks and very difficult to get out. And they choke off the nutrients and the moisture that the crops need. So when you have weeds that won't die when you spray them with, with glyphosate and you're not using other sort of agronomic practices, you're just relying on this weed killer, you have a real problem on your hands. And cotton farmers in the South um, have had particular problems to the extent where they have had to send, you know, workforces out into the fields to kind of hand chop, you know, hand weed fields. Um, and it's, it's costing estimated, you know, billions of dollars in lost production and added costs for farmers um, because part of what they're doing also you know, to try to fight this, is they're using more and more and more and more of the weed killer. So they're using two or three times more glyphosate than they used to to try to knock these weeds out. And and now what they're they're adding on other herbicides on top of it. So now we're adding dicamba on top of glyphosate, and we're adding 2,4-D on top of glyphosate. It's just it's what I talked about earlier. It's sort of a pesticide treadmill. Um, the more we use these pesticides, the more problems we create and then we try to address those problems by pouring more pesticides on top of them and then we create you know so as you see but the experts that I talked to in the book you know there are many weed experts agronomists you know plant scientists others who say this is not the answer this is not you know the way that you have a sustainable and healthy environment and future you know for our families this is this is this pesticide treadmill is, is deadly and devastating well it, it seems almost like a sci-fi movie that we've got weeds that are taller than a man <laughs> you know six feet tall or so and that you can't cut them down i think in your book you said if they get higher than an inch you're done and and you can't get rid of them um i'm not sure if i'm quoting that right but that almost that seems crazy to me you know when all i've ever dealt with is dandelions or or whatever in my yard um to to deal with weeds that are you know that tall and that 
it, it just it seems like a, a sci-fi it doesn't seem like something that should be happening yeah yeah no it's 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 been bad um for a lot of farmers it's been spreading you know many many you know tens of millions of acres of super weeds and um infested you know our our farm fields around the around the united states at least do you i do believe you have a problem in canada but i don't think it's as extensive as it has been in the united states so far because you know the united states is the largest user adopter of genetically engineered crops um where the farmers are spraying you know, over and over and over again with glyphosate. So, you know, that's what's caused the problem. So when we know that that's causing the problem, why aren't we making more steps into um, either banning it or or doing something different as opposed to more pesticides that are making the problem worse? Well, and that's the great debate right now, right? I mean, so you have these opposing forces. You have different sides, environmental um, organizations and weed scientists and, and plant experts and people like that who are saying, even the USDA, uh, which is a giant corporate agriculture cheerleader, but even the USDA has dispatched um, conservation and environmental science experts, you know, into the farm fields around the United States to start coaching farmers on reducing their pesticide use and reducing their weed killer use because of these environmental problems. Now they're doing it quietly. They don't want to advertise too loudly. When I talk to them, it's, you know, they're told not to talk too loudly about this because of course they don't want to do anything that harms uh, the, you know, business prospects of the big corporations. But, um, but there are a number of people around the country who are realizing and around, you know, everywhere in Europe and in Canada who are realizing that there needs to be um, a change. Um, but we still have our lawmakers and our policymakers who listen to the very powerful, very wealthy corporations who tell them, no, the answer is not, you know, more sustainable practices and less pesticides. The answer is more pesticides. Um, so it's a, it's a push-pull right now. Um, which, when when the the science is showing what's happening, it just make, seems to me like it should be very uh, straightforward. That you know we look at this in a certain way, but I know that's not the way things happen, and we do things a little differently than I guess we should to protect ourselves. And I know Monsanto is a a huge company and um, can probably defend itself better than you know a little person coming up and saying this isn't right. What's happening? Yeah, I mean, they have a lot of money, and they spread it around. You know, they um, there are giant campaign contributions from the big companies like Monsanto and Dow and um, DuPont, and they um, they have spent a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars here on lobbyists um, who are twisting the arms of lawmakers, who are leaning on regulators. Um, it's it's a hard thing, I think, and you you see it in many different issues, not just this issue, but Many times policymakers seem to forget they're there to protect the public and they get caught up in protecting the corporate interests. And that's definitely what we're seeing in this situation with, with the pesticides. It's uh, you know, protection of corporate profits more so than, than consumer and public health. Well, and one of the 
the things that that has had a lot of press um, is, of course, the the bugs that are being affected because it's not just the ones that are hurting the crops, but we're talking about the monarch butterfly and the bees um, that uh, are being affected by Roundup. So, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's um, the monarch butterfly is is sort of a sad one, isn't it? We talk about it in the book. Um, mm-hmm. It's not really disputed that that the wide use of glyphosate has led to a decline in the monarch butterf- butterfly population. Um, even Monsanto has admitted that and is trying to be part of an effort to restore um, or you know regenerate the monarch population. It's largely because as you um, spray glyphosate, you know, you're killing weeds, you're killing uh, milkweed, you're killing a lot of the, um, you know, the the natural environment around farm fields or around roadways or utilities or, you know, even lawn and gardens. Um, so when you take away the milkweed, you take away sort of the main sustenance and the main um, thing that monarch butterflies rely on. Um, so monarch butterfly population drops. So right now, there are a lot of efforts, government efforts, and as we said, private efforts to have people plant milkweed, you know, and try to try to restore that butterfly population. Um, the bees are, you know, another really worrisome situation, um, perhaps more so because they pollinate, you know, many of our food crops. You know, we don't just get honey from bees, right? I mean, um, many important food crops are pollinated um, by bees, and bees have been shown to be affected um, by pesticides or all of the different pesticide loads that we're putting onto our farm fields, um, neonicotinoids, um, which is separate from glyphosate, but is also a widely used um, type of pesticide and insecticide, is showing, um, you know, to be really, really harmful to bees and and glyphosate uh, to maybe a lesser extent. But again, you know, we're, we're sort of pouring these pesticides on our landscape and we're seeing the natural world uh, react in a way that isn't isn't really helpful. And and the poor bees, I say the poor bees, poor us. I mean, um, the bees that aren't dropping dead from neonicotinoid exposure are bringing glyphosate back to their um, you know their hives, and we're finding glyphosate levels in honey. Even organic honey products um, are being found to contain high levels of the weed killer glyphosate because it's everywhere and honeybees go everywhere and so they bring it back with them. So, um, you know, and, and we're creating insect resistance as well. The, the insects that there, there are also, um, GMO crops that are designed to be insect resistant, you know, so harmful insects that eat and infect crops. Um, several of those, um, there are crops that have been designed to resist those, those insects. And of course, the insects are now resistant, just like the weeds have become resistant. Um, so again, you're having to use more and more insecticide or try different things. So, you know, we thought we were smarter than Mother Nature, I guess, right? By bringing these, <laughs> tinker, tinkering with the DNA of, of these crops. But uh, Mother Nature is kind of saying, yeah, you're not so smart. So. <laughs> Well, and we're we're losing the butterflies and and the bees, like you said, they pollinate our crops, and and uh, without those, we're gonna die because we won't have any food, and um, you know that that's pretty sad. I I heard a story of someone who has bees in Calgary, and she always fought for them to not spray in her. Um, 
in her area and they did anyway um, even though they weren't supposed to and then you know the bees didn't die but they became really weak and they got mites and so she may lose all her bees and um, you know that that's pretty troubling to me um, that we're we're not being aware of what we're doing and on all we're really worried about especially when we're spraying in a city and in parks is dandelions you know, we're right. just like, it, right. it's aesthetics <laughs> and we're causing right. all this harm and we're doing all of this in, in even in urban areas um, when it, it's not necessary and we know what the repercussions are going to be because we're already seeing it and we're still blindly doing it without questioning anything. Right, right. Yeah, there's, there's a movement. I mean, you are aware of it. I guess you just referenced it uh, to a certain extent to, to by grassroots, you know, public people, just moms and dads and um, local people around North America and, and in Europe and places to just say, you know what, stop with the cosmetic use, you know, aside from the use in food production, the cosmetic use, just so we don't have dandelions or something else kind of, you know, uh, in the park, um, because my kids play in that park and they might roll around in the grass and, um, you know, suck on a dandelion stem, you know, or whatever, but mm-hmm. um, stop with the cosmetic use of all of these pesticides. And some cities and towns are listening and um, paying attention. But it really comes, I think I think what we're seeing is it really comes from the grassroots. It really comes from, you know, everyday mom and dad, um, on, you know, paying attention, doing a little bit of research, talking to each other, learning about it, and then telling their city leaders or whomever, county leaders, you know, this is important and stop doing it. And, you know, with enough informed, educated people, um, we can probably restore maybe some of the, the balance, you know, that has been lost. Um, we're going to talk about this more after the break. Um, today we're talking about talking with Carrie Gilliam um, about her book, Whitewash. It's the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. And we'll be back shortly. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Carrie Gillum. She is the author of Whitewash, the story of a weed killer cancer and the corruption of science. So, Carrie, the only thing in your book we haven't talked about yet is the corruption of science. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Gosh, yeah, we could talk the whole hour. (laughs) Uh, I guess one of the most alarming things, um, and I use the term jaw-dropping, I guess, is the level of deception um, that we have seen specifically when it comes to Monsanto and uh, the message of safety around Roundup and glyphosate. And uh, what, what we've been able to find out through Freedom of Information Act requests, myself and my organization, U.S. Right to Know, we've done free, Freedom of Information Act requests <coughs> to get thousands of documents from our U.S. regulators, FDA, USDA, and EPA, um, and to see how they interact with Monsanto. And then, of course, there are all of these cancer lawsuits. There are um, well over 3,000 plaintiffs now suing Monsanto um, because they say Roundup has given them non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And so a number of millions of pages of documents have come out through that litigation. And those are internal. Many of them are internal Monsanto emails and Monsanto reports and um, discussions among their scientists and, and, and their top executives. Um, and when you put all of that together, it's, it really shows you how this company has spent decades actively strategizing ways to be deceptive um, about this. And, and I lay out many examples in my book, but, you know, to me, that's the most alarming thing. Um, I mean, they're, golly, um, they're ghostwriting. We've seen where they talk about ghostwriting research studies, for instance, um, research papers that are published and peer-reviewed and, and out there that regulators look at that, that proclaim the, this chemical to be so safe and not to cause cancer. Well, you see Monsanto talking internally about how they're going to ghostwrite these papers. They'll pay a scientist outside of the company to put his name on it or and sign off on it, sign it, put his name on it, but Monsanto will do the writing. And they actually use the term ghostwriting. Um, and, and we've seen that, and it's deceptive. It, you, they also have what we see in the documents are sort of an army um, of secret 
soldiers is how you refer to it. And these are professors at universities um, around the world who appear to be independent of Monsanto, right? They appear to just be experts in, in agriculture um, or food production or, you know, whatever, um, experts in, in toxicology, um, for instance. And they appear to be independent, yet you can see in all these internal documents where Monsanto is essentially assigning them marching orders, assigning them policy briefs, to write, assigning them to reach out to their regulators and, and to tell their regulators, you know, hey, this is really safe, I, you know, or whatever. When um, IARC, when the International Agency for Research on Cancer came out and said, it looks like glyphosate probably causes cancer, you can see internally where Monsanto is reaching out to all of these different academics um, and telling them what to say and what to write. Um, while appearing to be, you know, just independent. And and they've set up websites, they've set up organizations that look like they're independent organizations that weigh in on public policy and publish articles in, in you know, magazines and newspapers. And, and we find out through these documents that Monsanto's PR people, their public relations people, have actually written the articles or written the documents. So... And it just goes on and on and on. There are numerous examples. Um, you know, Monsanto sending money to the universities and funding these programs for these professors secretly. These professors are representing Monsanto's interests secretly. Um, it's, it's, I call it decades of deception. It's, um, it's whether or not glyphosate causes cancer or doesn't cause cancer. You know, maybe people want to debate that. They certainly cannot debate that Monsanto has actively and strategically set about to deceive the public um, and policymakers uh, in multiple ways. That's documented in their own papers, um, and, and that's probably the most outrageous. So um, has there been, have they been punished in any way or anything when this was discovered, or are they just able to continue on? Well, not really. I mean, there have been, like, there were, it's, it's more the people. Like, there was a, a prominent um, scientist uh, who was publishing articles in Forbes magazine, for instance, and, uh, you know, very authoritative about the safety of, of Monsanto's products. And the documents showed that, he, and it came to light, the documents showed that Monsanto, you know, was not only telling him what to write, but writing it for him. And so, Forbes magazine, when that came out, you know, they removed his articles from their website and said they were severing all ties with him. And so you see these implications. There was a professor in with the University of Florida um, in the United States who the documents showed secret money and secret relationships with Monsanto, and the university had him donate some of that money to, you know, a food bank, uh, that kind of thing. And he took a lot of heat. And so, you know, there are ramifications, um, but nothing really against Monsanto. There, there's an investigation right now um, by the Office of Inspector General in the United States, the EPA's Office of Inspector General, um, looking at um, concerns that the EPA and Monsanto have been colluding, um, basically, when it comes to glyphosate safety, colluding to sort of cover up or, or you know, influence or alter the safety assessments on glyphosate. And then, of course, you have the, the cancer lawsuits which are alleging that Monsanto has, you know, lied and manipulated and hidden information. So um, that's where we are now. Europe is considering um, whether or not to keep glyphosate on the market there. 
uh, right now. I mean, they have are obviously paid attention to all of the evidence of deception. I'm not so sure we are. Uh, our U.S. regulators are doing that. I, it doesn't appear that they have much concern about that. So, um, yeah, so around around the globe, I know everybody's aware of what you and I have talked about. Um, are there different places, like you said, Europe, that are, are thinking about doing something differently than we're doing in North America? Oh, definitely. I mean, it was just last week that France announced that it was going to, to ban glyphosate. It was going to phase out all uses of glyphosate over the next few years. Um, are there are other countries smaller countries around the world that have also been moving to do that and looked at doing that. Now, understand whenever that occurs, there Monsanto um, and others in the chemical industry put great pressure then. You know, they apply great pressure and they fight back. Um, and they've enlisted the help of the State Department in pushing back on any restrictions um, on glyphosate. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's a big deal and it's a big political battle um, whenever you know, someone or some entity, some government entity does try to put restrictions on the chemical. On this chemical, it's a it's a billion-dollar baby. I mean, it's worth many billions of dollars to Monsanto and to other, um, you know, agrochemical companies around the world. So is, is there something that, um, say, uh, somebody like I can do to um, make changes to to bring either awareness or to, to change things in, in my own city? Well, I, yeah, I mean, there are people who, I said, they're doing it. You know, I don't know how to do it. I've never been sort of an activist or an organizer. I'm just a journalist. <laughs> I just find stuff out and write about it, right, or tell people about it. But, um, but yeah, what I see, um, people are. They're getting together. They're having meetings. They're having rallies. They're having town hall meetings. They're talking to their city council people and their school board people and they're, you know, and you're seeing it. I have lost track of how many little cities and towns are pushing back enough that they're getting some restrictions. The, the big, the hard, you know, the really hard thing is is taking it out of agriculture um, because, and that's the biggest use, of course. Um, but, you know, the big thing is to just be aware, right? Read, read the book, <laughs> read articles, read, you know, and talk about it to people um, and because it's serious and it is the health of our children. And, you know, there are many of these pesticides, chlorpyrifos is one of them. It's a hard thing to say, but again, it's on a lot of your fruits and veggies you might be feeding your kids. And it's been um, demonstrated through pretty, you know, strong research to have neurodevelopmental problems um, for children to create problems in their brains. Um, you know, so this, this stuff is important and it's, we, we need to pay attention. So um, uh, is there a way that we can protect our families? Like is, is eating organic enough um, or is that, you know, is that where we should start? That really it seems to be the easiest first step, right, um, is to try to reduce the pesticide load in your food. Um, and organic right now is, is really the way to do that. Um, there, there are food companies and, and others who are looking at sort of an in-between, sort of trying to contract with farmers or, you know, set up reduced pesticide, you know, food systems um, where maybe it's not all the way to organic, but it's not sort of the conventional, you know, heavy use of pesticides. 
um, you know, people are looking at it. But, but yeah, I mean, the easy answer for a consumer worried about pesticides in their food is, is to buy organic. Um, if you're, you know, live near a farm field or you are a farm worker or you, you know, your children play next to a farm field, I mean, that's a different type of exposure and that's a different type of, of action. You know, that's something where you need to find out what that chemical is and how far away it's being sprayed and when it's being sprayed, if it's being sprayed properly. And, um, you know, if somebody's flying over the farm field next to your home spraying weed killer, you know, that weed killer is drifting over onto your lawn and your child's playset and that sort of thing. So, you know, there are a lot, there are a lot of different implications, a lot of different things people can do and, and should do to protect themselves. Um, now, is there a, a way people can get a hold of you or your book if they have more questions? Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, have a, I have a website, um, it's just my name, uh, carriegillum.com. And uh, I've got information there about how to get in touch with me and um, the articles, hundreds of articles that I've written that people can search and and read um, about this subject and then information about the book and and things like that. So that's probably an easy one-stop shop, I guess. Well, and I encourage everybody to get your book. And, and even though you, you reference a lot of science, I found it really easy to read, which I think is important so that people can understand what's happening and what this is all about without being overwhelmed with, with trying to understand, you know, the the terminology or, or that. So I, I commend you on that because this makes it more accessible to people who just want to protect their families and their environment. Yeah. Thanks. I tried to, yeah, I tried to tell it just from, from the personal, you know, tell it through the stories of farmers and moms and dads and scientists and people, real people, because that's what mm-hmm. we care about. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I loved our conversation. I think this was really informative. Well, good. Thank you for having me. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. We are talking today with Carrie Gillum. She is the author of Whitewash, the story of a weed killer cancer and the corruption of science. So if you want any information about my journey, you can find it at dr-risk.com or you can tune in every Monday at 9 Pacific time or 10 uh, Mountain time. And thanks so much for listening today. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 